1997, I was walking across the street when I was hit by a small pickup truck and I was thrown about four feet in the air and I landed. I didn't break anything, but as a result, I developed fibromyalgia, which is a chronic pain condition that I still have to this day. And so I was very sick for years, years and years. And I got to the point about a year and a half later where I ended up losing my job and I was bedridden. And that was kind of my low point. Uh, I was very depressed. I was in pain um, pretty much all over, but uh, it's a nerve pain for me. It feels like fiery stabbing pain. Um, and so I was kind of at my low point for a while and I decided to start taking walks with my dog. I had this big giant German Shepherd mix named Zeus and he was always up for a walk. And so very small walks turned into very short hikes. And at the time I was dating a guy who would become my husband, Brian, and he would come on walks with us. And so the outdoors just really was a huge part of what made me feel better. That was Serena Rana Dufo, and you're listening to Real Talk Radio with Nicole Antoinette, episode 160. Welcome to Real Talk Radio with Nicole Antoinette. That's me, the podcast that's filled with refreshingly honest conversations about the wonderful mess of being human. We'll be diving into the full episode in a few minutes, but before that, I have three quick things that I want to share with you. The first is the promise that my guests and I are committed to one simple but powerful thing, telling the truth about our lives. That's it. No one's here to sell you anything. No one's trying to get you to fix yourself or your life. You're great, and we're all just doing the best we can. That's what I believe. The next thing I want to share is a reminder that this is definitely an adult podcast covering adult subjects, often using adult language, and we talk about things like work, love, sex, money, addiction, friendship, racism, body image, mental health, grief, fear, courage, change, and pretty much everything in between. My personal hope is that these conversations make you feel less alone while also challenging you to consider a new perspective from someone whose lived experiences might be different from your own. I think that's super important. And then lastly, the last thing that I want to share before we get to today's episode is that you won't hear any ads or sponsor promotions on this podcast, because these honest conversations are 100% listener funded. They're made possible by awesome regular people like you who give $8 or more per eight episode season. The show is, and will always be free. But if you love it, if these conversations make you laugh, think, and feel less alone, I hope you'll go to patreon.com slash Nicole Antoinette to make your pledge of $8 or more per eight-episode season. This kind of tangible financial support, that's what allows me to make the show. And it also pays everyone involved in making Real Talk Radio. That's me, my sound engineer, Adam Day, and every single one of my guests. It's been my dream for years to be able to pay all of my guests, and a few months ago, our community met the funding goal to make that happen. So all the guests whose stories you love are indeed getting paid for their time, with higher rates always being paid to our guests of color, as well as our queer and trans guests and others with traditionally marginalized identities. I know it's not the norm in the podcast industry to pay guests or to have a listener-funded show for that matter, I guess, Um, but I fully believe that where we spend our money is a real-time vote for the kind of world we want to live in. And if I want to live in a world of honest conversations where people get paid for the work they do, especially creative work, that means it's up to me to create that model here at Real Talk Radio. 
And as a special thank you for supporting the show, you'll get access to over 40 hours of bonus content, as well as our monthly book club, my weekly behind the scenes email series. That's where I share my real life in real time. Plus, you'll be the first to know when tickets go on sale for live events and retreats. Sometimes the live events and retreats actually get sold out within the Patreon community. So if you're interested in that, that is a good place to be. Also, 5% of each season's profit is donated to a different social justice organization, with past donations going to places like Trans Lifeline, Black Lives Matter, and Planned Parenthood, so you can feel good about that aspect of your pledge contribution to this show as well. If you go over to Patreon, you'll see that there are currently three different funding levels. There's an $8 level, a $16 level, and a $25 level, each with their own unique, awesome bonuses. At the $25 level, that's where we do our live Google Hangouts. And oh my gosh, those are so much fun. Those are perhaps one of my favorite things uh, that we do in the Patreon community. So one more time, that's patreon.com slash Nicole Antoinette. And at the very end of this episode, you'll actually get to meet one of our Patreon community members who joins me for a fun little rapid fire question round. So stick around for that after the main episode for sure. And now let's dive right into today's episode. Today, you'll get to meet Serena Rana Dufault. Serena is an advocate for the outdoors and wildlife. For over a decade, Serena has helped to build, maintain, and promote the 800-mile Arizona Trail and has hiked it twice, once to raise awareness of fibromyalgia, a chronic pain condition that she's had since 1997. Right now, Serena's in the process of writing a book, Day Hikes on the Arizona National Scenic Trail, which will be published in spring 2020 by Wilderness Press. She and I actually met because of the Arizona Trail back when I was through hiking it myself in 2017, and her kindness, expertise, and assistance was a high point of my hike for sure. Serena's company, Trails Inspire LLC, provides consulting services dedicated to promoting the outdoors, and one of their current projects is to develop a community trails plan for the town of Tucson, the gateway community to the Grand Canyon. Speaking of the Grand Canyon, Serena is also working on section hiking the entire length of it. And when she's not working or hiking, you can probably find her volunteering at Wildlife Rehabilitation, specializing in raptors. In this episode, Serena tells stories from her years spent hiking, particularly in Arizona, both in the Grand Canyon and along the Arizona Trail. And she starts by sharing the fears that she had as a new and inexperienced hiker, which is definitely something that I could relate to personally. She also talks about the work she's done to build and maintain various trails and shares tips and tricks for anyone looking to hike in the desert. Serena shares stories from her volunteer position in the world of wildlife rehab, which just like hiking is something that she started with very little prior experience. That's actually a wonderful theme. I think that comes through this conversation is the way that Serena embodies the idea of just learning as you go, trying something new and learning as you go. And it was such a treat to have this conversation with her. I hope that you enjoy it just as much. So all of that starts in just a moment, and as always, you'll be able to find all the links and resources mentioned in this episode over in the show notes at NicoleAntoinette.com slash podcast. All right, we are good to go. Serena, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me on, Nicole. So this might be sort of a funny place to start, but have you seen those 10-year challenge like photo memes going around on social media where people are posting like a photo of them from 10 years ago and then a photo of them now? Absolutely. Okay. So I thought it would be fun for us to do sort of a version of that and have you set the scene for me 10 years ago, the beginning of 2009. Who were you? What were you doing? What was important to you then? So in the beginning of 2009, I was in the middle of hiking the Arizona Trail. 
for the first time. Um, I was section hiking it. I had started the year before and I was hoping to finish in May uh, on fibromyalgia awareness day because I was hiking the trail for fibromyalgia awareness. It's a chronic pain condition I've had since I was about 23 years old. And so in January, 2009, I was probably either hiking, planning to hike, plotting, you know, where I was going to get my water, how, who was going to shuttle me. And I was just all about the Arizona trail, which is kind of funny because I don't think anything's changed. <laughs> <laughs> that has been my life. Uh, the last six months, I've been all about the Arizona trail. Uh, but in a completely different way, because now I'm actually teaching people about the best parts. I'm writing a book on the best day hikes on the Arizona Trail. So I went from, you know, that discovery 10 years ago. I had very little experience before I started hiking the Arizona Trail, and I did most of it solo. And um, I'd only been on two backpacking trips before. And so it was this amazing trip of discovery. And uh, I not only gained skills, but the biggest thing I gained was confidence from that experience because I had completely lost my confidence uh, before then. I, in 1997, I was walking across the street when I was hit by a small pickup truck and I was thrown about four feet in the air and I landed. I didn't break anything, but as a result, I developed fibromyalgia, which is a chronic pain condition that I still have to this day. And so I was very sick for years, years and years. And I got to the point about a year and a half later where I ended up losing my job and I was bedridden. And that was kind of my low point. Uh, I was very depressed. I was in pain um, pretty much all over, but uh, it's a nerve pain for me. It feels like fiery stabbing pain. Um, and so I was kind of at my low point for a while, and I decided to start taking walks with my dog. I had this big, giant German Shepherd mix named Zeus, and he was always up for a walk. And so very small walks turned into very short hikes. And at the time, I was dating a guy who had become my husband, Brian, and he would come on walks with us. And so the outdoors just really was a huge part of what made me feel better. It took my mind off of the uh, pain of fibromyalgia and kind of gave me my life back. I was able to return to work after a while and fast forward 10 years later after the accident in 2007, I went on a hike on the Arizona Trail near Oracle and I got this idea, this crazy idea that I was going to hike all the way across the state. Oh, yeah. And that's where we first met when I was through hiking the Arizona Trail and you were just the kindest, best, most helpful person trail angel ever. So thank you for that. It was my pleasure. It was such a joy to follow you on the Arizona Trail and like hear about your experiences and just see it through your eyes. <laughs> Even though you were like, mm, I don't really think you were very happy on that trail. I don't think you enjoyed that very much. Yeah, you're not wrong. It was hard. <laughs> It was really hard, but you know what? That's the thing. It's like, you don't, you don't have to enjoy every second of something to make it for it to be like an amazing experience. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Okay. So you just said like 10,000 things that I want to dig into in more detail. So 
specifically about uh, fibromyalgia because it's uh, it's honestly something that I don't know that much about. This might sound sort of strange, but I feel like my the most that I've heard about it is from commercials. I feel like it's something that's talked about a lot in like drug prescription commercials. <laughs> Yeah. Um, right. Like I, I, I don't know, maybe I, that's just me, but I feel like I've heard that a lot. So for, I guess folks who might not be that familiar, can you talk about maybe some like myths and misconceptions about it? Sure. Um, especially because I, when I was diagnosed, it was way back in 1998 and that was kind of the early years of fibromyalgia. For example, uh, as a result, uh, of the public perception, it the public perception at the time was that it wasn't an actual thing, that it was a bunch of mostly women that were complaining and the, the term malingerer, you know, it's like somebody that just wants attention and is, you know, pretending to be in pain, which I don't know why anybody would do that. But anyway, so uh, in 1998, when I was going through my uh, legal case against the person who hit me with her truck, I actually did not get anything for the fibromyalgia part of it. They didn't think it was something that was real. And uh, I think that if I had the case now, things would have gone a little bit differently. But um, back, like I said, back when I was, I was diagnosed, people didn't really think it was a thing. But uh, there has been quite a bit of research and I'm not, you know, admittedly not up on the latest, but it's a neurotransmitter malfunction, basically. It's for me, I can, you know, and I can only speak to my own experience uh, as far as like how it affects my body. But for me, it's like everything is completely hypersensitive. So it's my nervous system is hypersensitive. If you were to like poke me too hard or hug me too hard, it hurts. And, you know, I have pretty areas of when I'm in a flare and I'm actually in a flare right now, I have areas of constant pain and it's not like, you know, I can't take like a, an ibuprofen and it goes away. It's like a nerve pain and it's a tingling sort of fiery pain. And, um, so it's a neurotransmitter problem. It's also, uh, for me, I, I have problems with my sleep schedule. It kicks you out of your restorative sleep. And so as a result, you're tired a lot of the time. There's a fatigue that goes along with it for me. And um, also with that hypersensitivity comes a bunch of anxiety because everything's hypersensitive. And so it's multifaceted and it comes in flares and then it subsides. I actually had 10 years where I had no flares and I miss those days, yeah. <laughs> but it's, you know, and I've never taken any of the, you know, there's quite a few specific fibromyalgia medications out there for it. I don't have any experience with those when I was, when I was being diagnosed and going through my fibromyalgia treatment, basically all they did was give me about 10 different kinds of drugs, you know, from, you know, Oxycontin even, and they, uh, you know, they gave me a bunch of stuff for sleep and they gave me this for you know inflammation and they gave me this for that and basically it was just take these pills and go away because we really don't know what to do with you mm -hmm. so that had been my experience and i think it was 2006 or so i got myself off of all of those and um i do a 
bunch of different things to manage my fibromyalgia. But I think the biggest thing is just getting outside. And it's the, you know, it's such a combination of things. There's so many facets to it that help. There's the distraction, you know, how can you, how can you think about your shoulder when you're looking at an amazing, you know, bird or, you know, canyon or something like that. And then there's also just, you know, the health benefits of being outside, you know, breathing fresh air like we were made to be. And so that's always been really helpful. I do a, a couple other movement therapies. I, I'm very into dance. I love to dance. I use sound therapy quite a bit. And I've, you know, tried pretty much everything under the sun and just kind of found the things that work for me. Mm-hmm. But that being said, I'm not trying to pretend like, you know, it's all, you know, oh, I have my fibromyalgia managed and it's like fine. You know, I'm in a flare right now. I'm pretty pissed off about it. It's been going on for months. It's exhausting. I try not to focus on it, but at the same time, you know, you also have to give yourself space to kind of be angry about, you know, just the, I guess it's just so inconvenient. It's like, there's never a good time right and mm-hmm. so so for example I just hurt myself recently and you know normal you know, not normal people but like I think people without fibromyalgia they hurt themselves they're like oh I'm gonna be sore for a couple of days and then they forget about it but like with me it's like is this gonna make my flare even worse is this going to you know if I'm not in a flare is it gonna throw me into a flare I had a um small uh fender bender the a uh, couple months ago woman uh, i was stopped and a woman uh banged into the back of my car and there was no damage to my car whatsoever and the woman was just like oh well you're fine and because i look i also look like a totally healthy human being without fibromyalgia so i that's also a part of it it's like i look completely fine you know you look at my my Instagram photos, I'm smiling outdoors. I probably, you know, my, my shoulders are probably on fire. <laughs> I don't look like I'm in pain. So there's, there's that, um, that facet to it as well. Yeah. I mean, that was going to be one of my questions, especially when you said before, during the initial diagnosis process that, you know, it, it was a condition that oftentimes like people didn't believe or didn't know what to do with. And so I'm interested what it's been like for you to navigate an invisible chronic condition. Yeah. And, you know, people, I also look a lot younger than I am 40. I'm going to be 45 next month. I look a lot younger than I, than I am. Um, and people tend to kind of push that off as, oh, you're young, you'll get over it. And it's like, you have no idea what my story is. And that goes for so many things, right? It's not just for fibromyalgia. How many like, you know, invisible, like physical or mental conditions you know, or people walking around with that you just can't see. And so, for example, so I just mentioned I recently hurt myself. And I have to tell you a story because it was just, it was kind of epic the way the way it happened. So I volunteer at a wildlife rehabilitation center where we, um, we, manage, we deal with birds and small mammals. And I'm, I specialize in raptors, so I work with the owls and the hawks. And we have this owl that has been there for over a year and we've been rehabilitating it 
And it was a big day and I was finally going to go catch it and put it in a carrier, go take it away to the desert and release it. And I was in the cage with another uh, one of the volunteers and we're chasing this bird because this bird is now rehabilitated. So it's flying all over this flight, this flight cage and we're trying to catch it so we can put it in the carrier. And all of a sudden, before I even knew what was happening, I was down on the ground and I had fallen over. There was this random rock that was just sitting there in the in the enclosure and I fell super hard on my shoulder just my whole weight from you know, like standing all the way down on, onto my shoulder and my hip. Thankfully, I didn't fall on the owl, first of all, because that could have been horrifying. Um, it's a great horned owl with some of the you know, largest talons that we work with. And uh, would have hurt the, you know, if I would have hurt the owl, I, I luckily didn't, uh, didn't break anything, but I came down really hard and had have whiplash now from, my, uh, you know, hitting the hitting the ground. I didn't hit my head, but I got up, and you know, luckily we got the owl in the ca- in the carrier, and you know, no one the owl wasn't hurt. We got everything together, and I go in to the you know tell the other volunteers what happened, and there's these two folks sitting there, and they're like, well, you know, you know, you're young, you'll get over it, and you know, then they start talking about their shoulder and how they hurt all the time because they're old and it's like you just complete you have no idea what my story is this is this could be a you know months long setback for me being injured and just because you know you think that I'm this you know young healthy person and you know oh you're young and healthy you'll be you'll get over it well you don't know that you know and so that dismissal I think, you know, and the same thing happened with the, with the car accident I was in, uh, that dismissal, you, you look fine and well, maybe I'm not fine. So, and I think it's, you know, it's important to think of this too, just as a compassion thing when you're moving through, through life, like, you know, maybe that person has something that you're not, you know, you have no idea what they're doing. Yeah. And not making assumptions. I mean, my point of reference to relate to what you're saying for myself is with mental illness, right? Which also Mm -hmm. is almost always invisible. And I think, you know, what you said before about, sure, you can still have pictures on Instagram where you're smiling or where you're outside. I think also there's this myth or this desire to, you know, put things into either like this is good or bad or like you're sick or well or you're in pain and therefore not able to do something or you're doing your normal life. And maybe sometimes that's the case, but I think more often than not, especially with any kind of chronic condition, it's usually not an either or, it's a both and, right? That you can be outside and also in pain. And both of those can be true. And I think, yeah, it's dismissive to think, well, you know, you look this certain way, so therefore X, Y, or Z can't be true, or we're only going to take this seriously if it fits, you know, what we think, you know, a condition or an illness or something should look like. Sure. Yeah, definitely. Um, I want to ask more about this wildlife rehab work that you do, because that's also something that I'm not familiar with, but super interested in. Um, How did you get started doing that? So let me continue the story and then I'll tell you how I got, I got, I got started in it. So this, this owl, we finally get it in the carrier and it's just, it's all feisty. It's, you know, ready to go. We take it to um, this 
trailhead and you know open up the cage and sometimes when you do a a wild release you know they can be as feisty as they want in the cage and then you open at it and they just stand there and stare at you and you have to wait and wait and wait but this this one and we don't know if it's a male or female you actually have to do dna tests on great horned owls to tell whether or not uh, they tell what, what they are so we open the cage and the owl just jumps out looks at us and then flies to the very top of a saguaro cactus and just stands there majestically with the moon behind it and it was it was just amazing especially to know that this bird had been there for um, over a year, it had uh, come in with a injured wing, and then uh, the wing had healed, the fracture had healed, but then it became necrotic, uh, and the tissue was dying. So it had to have surgery, and it took a really long time to recover from the surgery. Then it had to regain its flight. I take the birds out to uh, do test flights before we release them. They're on a line called a crayons line with some um, little anklets called jesses around the ankles and that's how we test fly them but it was just it was one of the most amazing releases that i've been a part of mm. and it was a great it was a great experience and also uh, illustrated the fact that when i am you know really into whatever's going around uh going on around me in the outdoors i don't notice what's going on in my body because i can tell you that i wasn't thinking about how bad my shoulder hurt mm -hmm. Yeah, that sounds beautiful and also sounds like a unique thing to get to be a part of. It was great. So the way I got involved with that is um, after I finished hiking the Arizona Trail in May 2009, so it's almost nine, almost 10 years, I knew that I was going to have a big chunk of time that um, I had previously devoted to the Arizona Trail. And I also knew that I was probably going to have post-trail depression because, you know, I'd never finished anything like that before and I'd heard about, you know, finishing a giant, giant hike like that and being depressed afterwards. And I thought maybe if I had something else to occupy my time, um, that that would help. And I had found the rehab because um, we had a bird that was found in our yard. And so I called, called around to find out who it was. And I didn't even realize at the time that, you know, these things existed and called around and it was at this woman's house and her and her husband, Janet and Lewis Miller, were running this rehab. And uh, I took it in. And when I was in there, I asked them for a tour because, you know, I was really interested because they had a bunch of different small, like small animals and they had a whole room full of birds. That's all I could really see. But there was a bunch of flight cages outside and it was just really interesting to me. I had no idea that 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 was even a thing. And so I asked him, I remember asking them, so what do you, you know, what kind of things do you do as a volunteer around here? Is it more than just cleaning up a bunch of poop? <laughs> and, you know, and what, what exactly do you guys do? And cause they were just cleaning cages when I was there and, you know, they explained to me and I was like, wow, this is, this is pretty amazing. So, um, when I, this, this was before I had finished my hike. So when I finished my hike, I went up to, um, up to the rehab and I asked them about, about volunteering and they told me that you have to commit to one day a week and I started out like most people do um, we we have a lot of song songbirds and smaller birds and those are kind of the easier things to feed baby season starts for bunnies right around 
right around now, we just started getting our first little teeny baby bunnies in, which are super adorable. Little thumb-sized guys. And uh, we get a lot of baby and birds and animals all the way through the summer. But we also get a lot of animals that are injured. And I started out with working with the small songbirds and then kind of graduated up to working with the raptors after a while. Um, it's pretty specialized working with the larger birds because you have to be really careful. Uh, it's pretty dangerous. They basically have feet full of knives. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, plus they also can bite as well. And so, and we're dealing with, you know, for the most, for the injured ones, we're dealing with, you know, full grown wild adults that um, have come in and probably aren't too happy about having to be captured and, you know, caught and brought in to like get medication or, you know, if they can't eat on their own, you have to feed them. And uh, so, you know, it's, it's taken a while and, you know, you're never, there's never like a comfort it's always, it's always dangerous. I mean, like even, you know, I had a, a, an instance recently where a bird that I had worked with a bunch of different times, like just decided to bounce off my head. And when it did that, it was great horn owl and it, you know, pump, gave me a puncture wound on my head and you just, you, know, you just never know. Mm -hmm. But the flip side of that is that I have had a chance to come face to face and feed and rehabilitate some of the most beautiful animals and birds and to be able to look a hawk in the eye or a peregrine, hold a peregrine falcon, the fastest bird on the planet. Like that's just some amazing stuff. One of my favorite things is hearing something that someone's really passionate about that I've never experienced. Like a, a question that I ask a lot of, guests and I guess just like friends and people in general is to ask them to tell me what they're really obsessed with, right? In the moment, not necessarily even because I'm interested in the thing, but I'm really interested in other people's passion. Like that feeling when someone, like it's clear when you're talking about this, that you love it so much. And I don't know, it's like delightful to hear these stories. That's great. And, you know, like I said, it's not something that most people think of. And a lot of people, you know, they never get to see birds like that up close. I, tr I try to invite people. Um, when I did this release recently, I invited a friend of mine along and, you know, I just love to have people there because it's such a rare experience to be able to, first of all, see the birds up close like that. And then to see the release, I got really lucky when we were releasing that owl, uh, earlier, um, on Friday, there was this couple that was at the trailhead and, you know, I said, Hey, you want to, do you want to see, I've got a great horned owl and we're going to release it. And this woman got out of the car and she was like, great horned owls are my favorite. <laughs> and I just like, I made that woman's month, you know, like, yeah. it was just so wonderful to see because, you know, you never get to see that. And we got really lucky because the, the bird just posed for us, you know, for until we left, it was sitting there on that saguaro, just looking around. So especially since this is something, um, I mean, it sounds like that you didn't have experience with um, prior to doing this and that a lot of folks don't, I'm interested to hear what's something that's that either that you've learned or that has surprised you that you think people wouldn't know? I, you know, I, I think anybody who, who says that, you know, animals don't have their, their own personalities, 
just needs to come spend a day at the wildlife rehab. And they absolutely do. And even, you know, certain there's characteristics for certain kinds of birds like Cooper's hawks are just absolute. They're the most high strung bird I've ever met. Like, and I've never met a calm Cooper's hawk, you know? Uh, and uh, also, you know, just the amazing bond you can have with an animal, but also that part of that bond is letting it go and seeing it fly away and never knowing what happens to it. Just, you know, wishing it the best. Yeah. Being able to care for something and then not hold on so tightly. And people always ask, you know, do you guys name them? And it's like, no, no. other than our, we have, we have several educational animals. So we have a, a great horned owl uh, named Ollie and a Harris hawk named Satan. But other than those two birds, we don't name anything um, generally because they're ju- they're not supposed to stay. They're not supposed to stay with us if they, st- you know, they're supposed to go on to. Uh, and if we can't uh, place, if we, we don't have a place for them and they can't be released. A lot of times they'll go to different facilities all across the country. We've sent, we've shipped birds all over the place and different animals. Uh, you know, the Desert Museum in, in Tucson has one of our skunks. And, uh, you know, that's one of the ways that we place them. You're reminding me, we have a high desert museum here that I still haven't been to. And I like keep thinking that I should go and I don't go, but I'm going to go. This is inspiring me to go. (laughs) So I'm curious, you mentioned, um, specifically in the context of when you started that first, um, section hike of the Arizona trail that you didn't have a lot of backpacking experience. So it sounds like that's not something that you grew up doing in the outdoors. No, not at all. And um, so my dad is from India and he's first generation. My whole Indian family is in in India. He's the only one that's over here in the United States. And then my mother, uh, she is from Southern Italy and we still have quite a bit of family over there, but she came over um, with her family. And so I grew up very Italian, but also going to India for visits to see the Indian family when I was younger. And so with my dad growing up in India, you know, sleeping outside on a cot, my family lives in a village. He grew up kind of in the suburbs of New Delhi, but um, the family now uh, is generally centered in a village. And, you know, when we go there, uh, sometimes we sleep out on, on cots with mosquito nets still. And, you know, I actually interviewed my dad about this a little while ago because he really loves the outdoors and that's where I got my love for the outdoors. He's always been, you know, he's loved our national parks and, you know, just loves being outside. He's a photographer as well. And I, you know, asked him about hiking because he's also been my support crew on a lot of my hikes. And when I was hiking the Arizona trail, the first time, even though he lives in Chicago, he came out and was my support crew for quite a bit of it. And then when I did my through hike in 2014, he was my support crew for probably 75% of it. Wow. So, um, and he just loves the outdoors. And he said, he said, you know, I had no idea that hiking was even a thing. Like I didn't even know that this was something that you could do. Uh, he's like, we would go to the, you know, cause we would even go to the national parks, but we would like kind of car tour them, maybe, you know, have I don't, I don't even remember, like we never, ever like put on backpacks and went for a hike, you know, and he, he was kind of regretful about it. He's like, I really wish I would have known before he's quite a bit older now. And he's, uh, 
broken one of his ankles and so is not able to go longer distances, but he still loves getting outside. So, um, you know, like I said, I, I spent a lot of time, you know, not hiking, but I also have been thinking about it um, because, you know, there's this idea that if you you don't have a backpack and special shoes and, you know, you're not really hiking, but there's so many, like, you're not really being outdoors, but like, there's so many ways to be outdoors that aren't that. And since I've been thinking about that, I realized like I spent almost all of my childhood, my, um, my subdivision in the suburbs of Chicago was, um, part of it was built and then there was a recession. And so there was a big chunk of land that was like ponds and forests and you know that never got developed and that's where i would spend almost all of my time but i never you know put on a backpack to do it or you know had special shoes it was like we just played in the field we called it the field even though it was like forest and pond and that's where i spent a lot of my time and then when i was in when i was in community college studying fashion design of all things <laughs> i would ditch class sometimes and go to the forest preserve. We have these forest preserves. They're little chunks of chunks of trees that have little paved paths in the, in the um, Chicago suburbs. And I would go spend a lot of time there. But if you would have asked me if I was outdoorsy, like I probably would have said no, uh, even though I, you know, enjoy being outside. Um, it wasn't until I came to Arizona. I, so I was studying fashion design. I was going to go get my, uh, associate's degree in fashion design and then transferred to the Fashion Institute of Technology in New York City. And I was took a archaeology class because um, I had to fulfill a uh, requirement. And so I took this archaeology class and I was like, hey, this is pretty interesting. And I was getting pretty disenchanted with fashion design at the time anyway, because that was something that I chose when I was like 14. So, and you know, the reality of, of fashion design was not really what what uh, I had I had expected, and I was looking for something a little different, and so um, that first archaeology class led to several more, and then that's actually how I came out to Arizona. Um, I decided instead of going to the Fashion Institute of Technology, I was going to go and uh, study archaeology somewhere, and I wanted to get out of Chicago because I hate the cold, and I just you know I couldn't wait to get out of there, and I looked into quite a few um, different places in California, but California was really expensive. And so I looked at the University of Arizona and they had a lot of classes that I was interested in and the tuition was right. And I'd never even been to Arizona before. I'd never been West. Um, I think I'd been West once to San Francisco at the time. And so I chose the University of Arizona site unseen. One of the things though that did tip the scales was the brochure at the time had a picture of the uh, University of Arizona Mall, which is like our quad. And it was lined with palm trees and had a big mountain in the back of it. And for somebody in the Midwest, palm trees equals like amazing. Hmm. And, uh, you know, I didn't even know anything about that mountain. Uh, it turned out to be Mica Mountain that you go over on the AZT and the Rincons. And uh, I just thought that was it was just fascinating, but like, I didn't know anything about Arizona before I moved and I'd never even been. And so I drove out in, um, 1994 and, uh, boyfriend and I 
drove out. He was he dropped me off, and on the way we did this road trip. And the first place that we stopped in Arizona was the Grand Canyon. And the first hike I ever did in Arizona was the South Kaibab Trail down Cedar Ridge, which just happens to be the AZT. And I remember seeing the Grand Canyon and not even understanding what I was looking at, but being like, oh my gosh, this is just beyond amazing. And I, you know, I didn't even understand that there was like a river you could raft at the bottom or, I mean, I don't even think I, I, you know, I wasn't a backpacker. I didn't understand any of that stuff, but I was just absolutely taken by it. And I remember just being like, oh, you know, this is definitely somewhere to come back to, but I never even, I didn't actually end up backpacking it until a friend set up the trip. And I think it was like 2001. So, so it was a long time between 1994 and 2001, actually getting down into it. But so that's how I came out to Arizona. And then I went on like a couple of little hikes with friends when I, when I got to Tucson and I remember just being completely amazed because they took me to this place called Tinker Birdie Falls. And, you know, everybody that comes from outside of Arizona thinks that Arizona is just a completely dry, barren place. And I had no idea that Tucson was surrounded by, you know, I'd seen that mountain range on, on the brochure, but I had no idea that that mountain range went up to 8,000 feet or even what that meant, that there was trees up there and, you know, water and, so they took me to Tanka Verde Falls, and I just remember being absolutely amazed because there's beautiful, you know, running water and waterfalls, and it was just, it was amazing. And I was just kind of getting into hiking because uh, I had met my uh, my husband. This was quite a few years later, uh, in 1997. I had um, met my husband, and he was taking me for some hikes. You know, we went to Seven Falls, which is a very popular hike in Tucson. And, you know, I was kind of dabbling in it. But then I became really sick. So the little the time just to give you a little timeline on our relationship, I was hit by the car in January 1997. I had recovered from my initial injuries, but hadn't gotten really like hadn't kind of the fibromyalgia hadn't quite set in when I met him in April. And then basically from April until, you know, that whole like next year and a half, I just kept getting worse and worse and worse and worse. And so that's that kind of brings us to me, you know, losing my job and where I started the story um, with how I got into hiking with my dog. Yeah. So then I'm curious. I mean, there's so much that I love about what you just shared, specifically this idea that paths can be winding. And I mean, this is going to sound silly to me, but like that you can get better at something over time. I feel like sometimes it's like we think, oh, we either grew up doing this thing and we're really good at it, or, you know, we find a thing that we love and we go all in. And both of those can be true. But I love the parts of your story of, huh, I'd never really done this hiking or I had been outside, but it hadn't really involved a backpack. And then I saw the Grand Canyon and and like, there's a pretty, you know, like large time span in there between, you know, like all of the different sort of phases of this for you. And I love that reminder that like, I don't know, things take time. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, it wouldn't, you know, and each step allowed for the next one, you know, like my Arizona trail experience, I never would have tried to become a raft guide, a river guide in the Grand Canyon had I had that, had I not had that experience. Like if I tried to go just right from getting better from fibromyalgia to becoming a raft guide, I don't think that would have worked. I think, you know, 
struggling my way through the Arizona Trail, learning all of the stuff that I learned about myself, and then going after something like that. You know, it's things build upon themselves. And you know what else? Sometimes you have no idea what, when something that you learned in the past is going to come back up and be useful. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You never know. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. So I'm interested when you did start, you know, backpacking or specifically with your first hike of the Arizona Trail, do you remember what some of your fears or concerns were as a beginner? Yeah, I was really concerned about running out of water, which is still, you know, always number one in the desert, but I've gotten better at it. I was really concerned about getting lost because back then, they, um, I'm going to get into my back then. <laughs> uh, so back then there, we actually had to make our own maps and, uh, there was GPS points, but they were sometimes a half mile apart. So, you know, if you get lost in a certain area and your next point is, isn't for a half mile in some of these desert sections. And, um, you know, the, the, the Arizona trail actually wasn't complete when I hiked it. So there was about 60 miles that I had to bushwhack through. And for some of that, I joined up with people, but for some of that, I did it by myself. And that was totally new. I'd never traveled off trail before, you know, without a trail. I was somewhat concerned about people and animals, but, you know, not, I was, I was definitely concerned, more concerned about mountain lions. And I think that's pretty funny because it's one thing I have never seen in all of my years of hiking trying to think of what else I was really concerned about. I was concerned about falling and hurting myself. And I did fall and I hurt myself. Mm-hmm. Um, I fell over my trekking pole. I like tripped myself with my trekking pole. I've done that too. <laughs> yeah, that was great. It was on a completely flat part of the Mogollon Rim too, <laughs> which I guess is better than the side of the canyon. But yeah, you know, and then the biggest thing though, I think when I was first starting out is that I just did not believe in myself necessarily at all. You know, like I was always so worried that I was going to like have to, you know, figure out where to bail out. And so I like had all these bailout points on my, um, you know, when I was planning, like, okay, and if I need to get out of there, I can get out here, which is, I mean, it's good planning, but it's also, you know, it also shows, you know, you pack your fears. And uh, that's kind of one of the things that I was worried about and just not being able to do it because I'd never tried anything like that before. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, obviously <laughs> the, okay, maybe not obviously, but my sort of opinion with getting over fears or this type of stuff is, yeah, like you said, you can prepare and you can do research and it's great to learn skills and educate yourself as much as possible. And also after that, I feel like for me, the only way to move through it is to actually do it. The idea that action cures fear. And so I'm interested with some of the specific fears that you named, what it was like for you to either get over them or hike along side them or you know maybe by the end of that hike like do you feel like any of those fears went away yeah i mean definitely not maybe not by the end of that hike by the end of that hike i was definitely more comfortable but you know when i think about that because i did i did quite a bit of my um of work on my memoir last year about this time and so i was like looking through old journals and things i mean this is something that's been on the back burner for like 10 years now but Um, I was looking through journals and things and, you know, it's just, it's fascinating because right now I feel just as, I I like to say, I feel as comfortable in the outdoors as I do in my living room. 
and to remember that that was not always that way. But yeah, I definitely, you know, just as you do things over and over. And also I was solo for almost, almost the entire hike. So, you know, there was that too. And, you know, cell phone technology was not what it is now. Uh, There was big giant chunks where I just had no, I had a spot. So I had something, you know, I had an emergency transmitter. So in case anything really bad happened, I had, you know, I had an option, but it wasn't like, you know, I could just call my husband when I was feeling scared and be like, Hey, you know, how's it going? And, you know, I kind of had to do it on my own, which was, you know, super useful later in life. Yeah, I definitely felt that way. I mean, obviously I know that we talked a bit, you know, when I was on the trail and after, and that was the most solo thing I had ever done. It was the hardest thing that I had ever done hiking the Arizona trail. It was the most lonely that I had ever been. It was the most scared that I had ever been. And it was, yeah, it was so much. But on the other side of that, I mean, it sounds cliche, but like, I can't, I can't imagine not having had that experience. And I feel like so much of my confidence and like belief in myself and the conviction that something can be hard and I can still do it. Like so much of that was born from that experience for me. And it sounds like similarly for you. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we learn so much from those kinds of things. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's like what you were talking about um, before with the wildlife rehab, this idea that especially working with the larger birds, that it's always dangerous and scary, but that doesn't mean that it's not worth it. And it doesn't mean that you can't do it. I feel like there's a through line that applies there to what you're talking about, about hiking too. Like the conditions don't have to be perfect and you don't have to know everything in order to get out there and things can be unpredictable and maybe you do get hurt or something does go wrong, but it's still for you worth it in the end. Definitely. So this is a perfect time to bring in my favorite quote from my friend, Chelsea Atwater. She is uh, one of my, she was one of my mentors when I was a river guide. And she says that when you're getting ready to do something big and scary, take a deep breath, smile, say, this is badass and go, go for it. I love that. (laughs) So good. I'm interested. So the first hike you said um, that you finished in 2009, right? Yeah. And then you hiked the Arizona Trail again in 2014. And I'm interested to hear what it was like doing the same trail for a second time that many years apart. Well, it was two completely different hikes. They really could not have been more different because um, the first hike was, you know, it was this hike of discovery. And, you know, I was solo and you know figuring out a lot of stuff on my own um the second hike so after i did the first hike i the experience was so amazing to me that i was like you know i need to tell people about this trail and this has always been a you know it's been a passion of mine ever since i found out about it i think it's an amazing trail so after my 2009 hike i was so amazed with the experience that i'd had and i loved the trail so much that I decided to start doing some talks. So I put together a slideshow and I went to Summit Hut, which was one of my sponsors for my Arizona Trail for Fibromyalgia hike and gave my first presentation and first of many, cause that's what I still do and just promoted it on my own. And at the time I was also helping to build the trail. The trail at the time was not complete. It was completed in 2011. And so I helped on a trail crew called the Crazies, and we would go out and build trail near Tucson. And I was just really involved in, you know, promoting this because I thought 
it was such a great thing that nobody knew about. Even people whose, you know, businesses were right on the trail or, you know, they were, you know, went right through their town. There just wasn't that knowledge about the trail and whether or not it was complete or what, what the, you know, very little known about it. And so I um, was promoting the trail on my own. And in 2011, when the trail was getting close to being complete, the executive director at the time, Dave Hicks, called me up. Uh, it's a phone call I'll never forget because he said, you know, we have this idea for a gateway community liaison that will travel around the trail and promote it to the businesses and the communities. There's 33 gateway communities on the trail. And, uh, you know, at the time I was doing a lot of volunteer work for the Arizona Trail Association. And I was thinking, gosh, this is great, but like, I'm already doing a lot of work. But he said these magic words, which were, I have a grant from REI. And uh, I got a very, very part-time position in 2011 as the Gateway Community Bees. And so through the next years that I worked there, I worked in, there until 2016, I developed the Gateway Community Program. And what that means is that I provided, you know, when I first, it was interesting because the, the job kind of, it transformed as I was doing it. Because when I first got the job, I thought, okay, this is great. I'm going to go into these communities, tell them all about the trail users because you can hike, bike, or ride the Arizona Trail. And I'm going to tell these guys about the trail users and make sure that the trail users are well taken care of and that they have the facilities and the th things that they need in their towns. But as I was working and I, as I was learning more about economic development and what trails can mean for small towns like the ones in, in Arizona that are on the Arizona Trail, it really transformed because I realized that by promoting the trail and promoting these gateway communities to the trail users, there is a huge economic benefit to these small towns. And a lot of them, you know, needed some help because they're trying to diversify themselves after, um, you know, mining has gone away and, uh, you know, they're just trying to make a living. And so these, you know, these trail users actually bring jobs and economic development into these towns. So that was really neat to realize that that was such a big part of what I was doing. And I was very, very proud of that program. Uh, when I first started, I would go into a town and people would just give me this blank stare when I would talk about the Arizona Trail. Or they'd say, oh, yeah, we got trails around here. It's like, no, the Arizona National Scenic Trail. You know, to compare that with, um, you know, you can tell me what your experiences were like in the gateway communities, you know. I'm sure that you, you know, people came up to you and asked you if you needed a ride or, you know, needed any help or, you know, that and that perception is also really important because if you don't know that there's a long distance trail nearby, maybe a backpacker looks like a homeless person rather than somebody who's in your town to spend money. And so that's a very important distinction that I think the program has brought about as well. Mm hmm. 
What are a few things that hikers, or I guess anyone, might not know about the work that goes into planning, building, and maintaining a trail? Like, let's just, you know, use the Arizona Trail as an example, because you mentioned that when you first hiked it, that it wasn't finished and that you got involved in building it. And I feel like that's the kind of thing someone would could hear and be like, well, I don't have the skills for that. Like, that's not for me. And yet I, I know from your story that it's not like you grew up learning how to build like wilderness trails, right? So... <laughs> Can you talk about that a little bit? And especially, I think, I know you used to, or maybe you still do work as a trail steward, right? Yeah. So I'm a trail steward and um, my company, Trails Inspire, also does trail design and development. And it's something that I I learned completely, you know, on the job with, or, you know, not on the job, but volunteering, which I also think, you know, if, if you have the ability to volunteer, um, that's just an amazing way to really get into finding out about new things and finding out whether you like them and, you know, learning from people who are really passionate about them. So I uh, started volunteering to build the Arizona trail um, in 2007. And a lot of that was, uh, you know, so in the desert, it's all about, well, trail trails in general are all about water, which sounds weird, but trails are engineered to deal with the water that they so in the desert, if you have a trail that's built properly, it will shed water and the water will not wash out because what little water we get, you know, has the possibility. Everybody's been on those trails where it's like it's a gully is, you know, deep as your shin. That's what happens when you don't put a trail in the right place and it doesn't shed water correctly. Hmm. Another thing is, you know, just the more obvious thing in in Arizona is just clearing the brush. It's a lot harder to move around the desert if a trail hasn't been cleared properly. You know, that might've gone through some overgrown parts on the Arizona trail. Oh yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I, I remember coming out of, and that was sidebar when you said that when you went through that there were, I think you said like 60 miles or something that wasn't trail yet. And that it was just bushwhacking. Like my whole body tensed up in response to that, because I remember <laughs> like even the sections that I went through that obviously it is a trail, right? It is maintained, I guess, to the best of the trail stewards ability. I mean, there were still sections that I would come out like covered in blood, like from oh, how yeah. sharp it was and everything, you know, and I was wearing shorts, which is probably stupid, but like, so thinking about going through specifically in Arizona, right? Where it's not just overgrown, but everything's like so thorny and sharp. Like, oh my God, I can't imagine. Yeah. So, um, you know, so there's that. And then, um, and then to do, to bring in the trail design part of it, um, which I have recently gotten into, that is really fascinating because then you're just looking at a landscape and being like, gosh, what, what do people want to see? You know, like, what are they, what are they, what's the interesting points on this landscape? Where's the good viewpoints? Where's the neat features? Is there a cool rocky outcropping? Um, These are what we call control points. And you use those to design the trail around these things that you want to visit. But always keeping in mind the grade and the slope, because those are really important. You want to keep keep things under 10% grade for best sustainability. And so the, you know, making a trail sustainable means that, you know, going forward, it won't require this, you know, it won't gully out. It won't require a bunch of maintenance on the tread itself if it's placed properly. 
Yeah. Do you have any um, advice for folks to get started, maybe who haven't had any experience like volunteering with trails or doing trail maintenance? Um, I don't know. Any ideas of like where to start? Uh, obviously, pe- like internet, Google it. But just, <laughs> if you have any particular tips of like, hey, you maybe people could check out this or this. Sure. Well, um, you know, if you've got a long distance trail near you, the, you know, all of the trail associations have websites with calendars. If, you know, there's probably a trails association in your area. You know, I, I know that many states will have a state run service. Um, also, hiking clubs are a lot of uh, a lot of times hiking clubs will do some maintenance events as well or checking with like the um, the county or when the government opens, checking with the Forest Service. I also wanted to ask you, um, obviously, with all of your desert experience, can you give some like tips and tricks for desert hiking? Sure. One of my favorites. So most of my desert hiking tips and tricks lean toward how to keep yourself cool. Um, keeping yourself warm in the desert is definitely a challenge sometimes just because there's such wide range of, and you know, you can get really hot during the day and get really cold at night. So packing for that wide range sometimes is challenging, but I think that, you know, people know how to deal with cold weather, I think more than they know how to deal with the heat. And so one of my favorite tricks is to take a wet bandana and you tie it around your neck. And what that does is it fools your body into thinking it's cooler than it is. Um, your body gets the information on how, how warm it is from your, from your neck. And so that's why when it's cold, you put a scarf on because that'll tell your body it's warmer. Um, same sort of thing with the, the cold bandana around your neck. Another thing is just don't be afraid of just absolutely soaking yourself down if you can find water. You know, so um, despite the fact that most people think that deserts are dry, uh, a lot of places will have, you know, perennial or seasonal streams. Um, and you definitely just want to take advantage of that at all times. Um, another thing that I I've done is this helps so much in the Grand Canyon. I was hiking out in uh, September, I was hiking out the North Kaibab trail and at the last water crossing, I bought one of the cotton t-shirts you can get. It's like a cotton long sleeves t-shirt you can get at the bottom. And I brought an extra gallon Ziploc bag with me. And at the last water crossing, before I started ascending to the North Rim, I wet that t-shirt and then I put it in the, I bring it out, put it in the um, plastic bag and stuffed it way deep in my pack. And then when I got to the hottest, like where I was just like, oh, this sucks, this sucks, I'm so hot. You know, just like that moment, I was like, okay. And then I drop my pack, change into the cold, wet shirt and it changes your life. Oh my God, that sounds amazing. It is so good. <laughs> and uh, for those of you who know the North Kaiba, it was right after the, right before the, the Red Wall Bridge, before you're like doing that big climb up in the Supai. And um, so, yeah, that's a, that's a definite trip, a tip for if you have some water around. Um, if you don't have water around, I'm a huge fan of umbrellas. I use a Gossamer Gear umbrella. It's a silver reflective umbrella and it's built really well. So, you know, I used to like just a regular like store umbrella for a while, but, um, these trekking umbrellas are carbon fiber. So they're real light. And then I think they withstand the winds a lot better because a lot of times you will have pretty high winds here. So that, I mean, it's portable shade, 
what more could you possibly want in the desert? Yeah. You know? yeah. <laughs> and I know they don't work for everybody. And there are ways to attach it to your pack so that you don't have to hold it in your hand all the time. But the benefit that I see to holding, um, holding the umbrella in your hand is that you can make small changes to the angle of the sun. Cause unless you're walking in the exact same direction, the entire time, the sun's going to change and you're not going to have coverage. Mm-hmm. For example, if you're switchbacking, you're, then you're changing your, the side that's exposed and you're not getting coverage. So it's just something that you kind of get used to. If you're really um, used to using two poles though, then you know, strapping it to the pack is an option. Yeah. So you mentioned uh, the Grand Canyon, which I know is a place that you've spent a lot of time. You are currently working on section hiking the whole length of it, right? Yes. Over a, And this is another one of those over very, very many, many years. Yeah. But I mean, I, I love that. And I, I'm actually, I'd love to hear more about that. I mean, my experience with the Grand Canyon, I went similarly, it sounds like to your first experience when you drove there on your road trip, I went once and, oh, isn't this a nice viewpoint and did like a tiny little day hike down into it. And then other than that, just, you know, going rim to rim during the Arizona trail hike, that's my entire experience. And yet I feel like I can't stop thinking about it and really want to spend more time there. And so I would love to hear from you, uh, maybe you can just talk a little bit about like about the Grand Canyon and specifically like the hiking that you're doing, maybe how long it is, what the terrain's like, what this kind of hiking requires. Sure. So um, the Grand Canyon from uh, Lee's Ferry to the Grand Wash Cliffs, uh, the Colorado River is 277 miles long. But each of those, uh, all of those miles, there's hundreds of side canyons that cut into the Colorado, that, that lead to the Colorado River. So because you have to go around all of these, uh, for the most part, you're not at the river level necessarily a lot. You know, people hear, oh, you're going to hike the Grand Canyon. You're just going to walk along the shore, right? But sometimes the shore, there is no shore. Sometimes it's just, you know, rock all the way down to the river. Um, sometimes, a lot of times, if you do have a travel option along the river it's choked with a lot of brush and tamarisk and so it doesn't make it as as enjoyable so your other option is to go above the river which means you have to navigate all of these side canyons so all said and done including you know i also have to hike in and out every time i do a section it'll probably be about 600 miles of hiking wow and of that um i'm pretty much so i've done about a third so far. Um, I did my first section when I, in 2009, I hiked from, I hiked a piece of the Tonto Trail. So that kind of started it all. Um, the Tonto Trail is a trail that's about 1,500 feet above the river and tra- travels along this plateau. And there's a trail for about 90 miles. And, but then after that, you're, you know, there are pieces of trail on, you know, doing the entire Grand Canyon Traverse but I'm pretty much done with most of them. And also there's a distinction between um, some people will travel the entire time on the north side. Some people will travel the entire time on the south side. I don't particularly care. I'm doing a mixture of both south and north sides. So um, like I said, I've done most of the stuff that has a a trail to it. Um, The way that I got the idea to hike it in the first place was um, when I was on the river 
in uh, Grand Canyon when I was working as a river guide, one of the things that I would teach people about was the people that have hiked all the way through the Grand Canyon. And back in 2015, I think there was only like 30 of them. I think now it's closer to 40. And so I would talk about these people who had hiked Grand Canyon. We talk about, oh my gosh, can you imagine how tough that would be? Look at this terrain. And when I was on my very last river trip um, that I worked in 2015, I was, you know, telling my people about the Grand Canyon. And I was like, I want to be one of those people. And, you know, I don't know what it's going to take, but I'm, I want to be one of those people that's hiked the entire length of the canyon because throughout, you know, the, the time that I've known it, it's just every single thing that I learned about it makes me love it even more. And so to be able to see the length of it, even though I know that even in the, the best part about Grand Canyon is even if you do the entire length of the river, you're still just scratching the surface. Mm-hmm. You could go back to that place every single day for the rest of your life and never run out of things to see. Yeah. Yeah. I love what you just said about, you know, uh, I want to be one of those people who's done that. I feel like that's the start of so many like great adventures or, you know, it doesn't necessarily have to be in the outdoor realm, right? It could be anything Mm -hmm. that this idea of, oh, there are people who do this thing, huh? I could be one of those people and being willing to start there, even if you don't know how to do it and you don't yet have the skills required, this idea of like, okay, other people have done this. Like I can also figure out how to do this. Yes. Yeah. Even though it's really challenging. Yeah. Yeah. Can you tell me a story from one of your most memorable days so far in the Grand Canyon? Well, I'll tell you a story about one of the most memorable couple days, actually. So I um, had done this trip and uh, I think it was the end of 2017. And it was a uh, trail from Nankaweep Trailhead to the Tanner Trailhead. The only thing is that So it was about five days of off-trail travel, and then I was going to get to the river at this beach called Lava Chuar Beach, because I had gotten dropped off on the north rim, but my car was on the south rim. And so I had done this off-trail travel for, you know, a bunch of days. I was feeling great, and I was super excited. I got to the beach, and um, I had actually had a river trip put a cache for me. So that was a bucket filled with, you know, extra food and some, you know, extra fuel for my stove and some, you know, just fun stuff like coconut water and mandarin oranges. And so I got to the beach and this was on a Thursday around two o'clock and I got to the beach and I got my cash and I sat on the beach and I looked upstream and I did that for 44 hours. So a whole day went by so the night night fell, the whole next day went by and absolutely no boats came to give me a ride across. Oh and gosh. this is in October. And so I'd been there for, you know, over a day and a half. It was so windy. It was like this crazy windstorm, like just blowing and like, just, you know, I'm sitting there on the beach going, this is when you learn how to be happy no matter where you are. You know, <laughs> like you're in the Grand Canyon, look at the good things. You have a beach all to yourself there's nobody around. I could see like some backpackers like way on the other side of the river. And for those of you who don't know Grand Canyon, you would never, ever try and swim this. That would be a death sentence, basically. Uh, The river's 50 degrees and super wide at this point. It's either a boat or a pack raft, and I didn't have a pack raft. So I sat there and, you know, I I have a journal too. You know, I was just journaling about what it was like to just sit there for 
such a long time and like just not know. And, and then I thought about like all the people who had been marooned on islands and like that feeling of like never know. Cause I mean, I knew somebody was going to come and get me at some point, you know, if I just sat there and luckily I had packed quite a bit of food in my catch, but you know, just sitting there and not knowing, looking upstream and not knowing, I couldn't move from that beach because I couldn't go like explore upstream or whatever else. Cause you know, what if a boat came? And so it was really interesting. It was like, just kind of learning how to be happy with where you are. And uh, the finally, so the next day, so it was Thursday, I waited all Friday and then Saturday around 10 in the morning, a bunch of boats pulled up and they were like, what are you doing over here? <laughs> <laughs> and I have to, I have to like flesh out this, uh, this whole thing for you. I'm, I'm wearing a skirt. I've got a backpack and a bucket and I'm sitting on a beach in the middle of the Grand Canyon. <laughs> <laughs> so that was fun. And then I got, I got across the river and then I like literally moved like, uh, you know, hundred feet downstream and set up, set, set up for the rest of the afternoon and hung out exactly where I'd been just a little bit downstream before I had to hike back to um, my camp for the day. And then I hiked out the next day. So tell me about hiking in a skirt. Well, so I was only in a skirt because I was done with the, um, with the off trail portion, because I'll wear a skirt on anything unless it's off trail and really brushy or just really overgrown. And uh, I, I started hiking a skirt during my uh, 2014 through hike. And I just, it just feels comfortable. You know, I do, I do wear shorts underneath it. Um, I used to wear just a thrift shop skirt, but I've changed to a purple rain adventure skirt. And I have to tell you, this thing has got pockets. It's got pockets on pockets. So it's, it's great. I really like it a lot. It's made out of really nice, um, you kind of snag resistant material. Cause when I was hiking in a thrift shop skirt, I'd get snagged on stuff sometimes in the desert. I just really like, I like the, the way it feels. I like the privacy you're going to the bathroom, stuff like that. The way I started wearing skirts was I used to wear, you know, wear like just hiking pants and, you know, just be real, like kind of not care what I looked like necessarily outdoors. But then I, when I was started working on the river, there was just, they just always, all the women that I worked with looked so cute. Like they just like had these cute outfits and like cute skirts. And it really appealed, I guess, to the fashion designer in me <laughs> that, uh, you know, just, you can wear whatever you want and still be outdoorsy and, you know, run a rabbit. Like you don't have to wear, you know, pants and a baggy shirt. Yeah. So. Yeah. Figuring out what makes you feel good and comfortable and then doing that. Yeah. Um, so with the Grand Canyon specifically, this is a completely selfish question, but I'm really interested in going back there for maybe a week or two and doing some kind of backpacking that's, you know, I guess a little bit different than just the trail that I did as part of the Arizona Trail. Is there something that you would really recommend for a week or two in the Grand Canyon? I would recommend pieces of the Tonto Trail. So um, that's the trail that I mentioned. That's uh, So you have like, you know, about 90 miles of trail to choose from where it has different access points from di different um, areas on the South Rim. And so you can start at one and make your way toward another trailhead and hike out. And that's my favorite because, you know, with the rim to rim hike, you just get a slice of the canyon. 
but this you get like a chunk. Yeah, that sounds incredible. Yeah. Um, And I, yeah, even when I was there, I was in, I mean, because I obviously went southbound on the Arizona Trail. And so, you know, doing the Grand Canyon was, I don't know, like day five or six, right? It was like pretty soon into it for me. And I had messed up my knees like on day three doing something stupid. And so I was really in quite a bit of pain. And I feel like I wasn't able to enjoy it as much as maybe I would have liked to. And I kept thinking, man, I want to go back to the Grand Canyon. So that is, that is a good tip. I will definitely do that. You know, I still think that and I've been there a million times. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Good to know. Do you have any, I don't even know if advice is the right word, but something that you would want to say to anyone who wants to get out on a long trail themselves, particularly solo women looking to do something alone like you and I have done? Yeah. I just think that, you know, it's really important not to listen to what other people are going to tell you because those people are just going to project all of their fears onto you. Like, and you can tell you can tell exactly what, what their fears are because you can tell what their concerns are for you. And that's not necessarily your problem. You know, I mean, we're always told that we have to make everybody feel comfortable. That is not necessarily the case. You know, my, and you know, I got to give a shout out to my husband, Brian. He is awesome because, you know, even though he is not comfortable sometimes. He worries about me. He probably worries a little less now that I'm more experienced, but I'm sure, especially when I first went out, you know, he was, he was pretty concerned, but he's always been just a really great supporter of mine. And, you know, like I said, you just, you can't let other people's perceptions affect what you want to do in your life because they're not the ones that are going to be out there. And, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry that you're not, you know, the, that person is letting whatever fear that is keep them from going out solo, but that doesn't have to be your fear. Yeah. I really like that. And I mean, I think like a lot of things easier said than done, but yeah, not, not letting other people project their stuff onto you. Well, and I got that a lot, you know, I used to do a lot of solo international travel when I was younger and, you know, just everybody's always scared for people. And it's like, well, you know, that's, that's not how I'm living my life. And I'm sorry that that's the way you feel, but, you know, I'm not going to, I'm not going to not go do these things because of your perceived fears about them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I love that. So I want to talk a little bit about your company, Trails Inspire. When someone asks you what you do, how do you respond? So I run a consulting company that's devoted to promoting the outdoors through writing, photography, public speaking, and trail design. Yeah, I'm interested particularly in the trail design piece because I think, and it's like a unique and interesting thing that I, I mean, obviously somebody plans trails, right? I just like never really thought about (laughs) it before. Can you, I guess maybe in like a nutshell, can you talk me through like some of the process of planning a new trail? Like maybe use an example of a recent project, but like, where do you start as a consultant for that? What does that entail? Sure. So I got the contract um, in 2016 to develop a gateway, uh, the a community trail system for the gateway community to the Grand Canyon. It's a little town called Tucson, not to be confused with Tucson. So this is a small town that's uh, just south of the Grand Canyon, um, generally owned by either private land or Kaibab National Forest. So the town actually owns no land. So what I was brought in to do is they had in their trails plan, or they they had in their town plan, their 10-year town plan to have a community trail system developed, but nobody in the town knew how 
how to do it or even where to begin. And so that's where I came in. I had worked with the town previously when I was with the Arizona Trail Association as working with the gateway communities. And so I heard that they were looking for somebody to do this. And I contacted them and they hired me to not only develop, but also build the trail system. And right now, so in 2016, the first thing that I did was find out what do the people want? Because I'm not just going to come in there and say, hey, this is what you guys need for your trail system. I Community engagement has always been one of my most important goals. Um, you, you know, it, you're just going to sow discord if you come in and tell people this is what you're getting rather than having them be the ones because and also I'm I'm a stranger to Tucson. I've spent a lot of time at the Grand Canyon, but other than just, you know, the Arizona Trail through there, I haven't really explored. And so I came up with a public questionnaire to determine what kind of things people were already doing in the forest and what kind of things people are were already doing for recreation in the area. And then to find out what the needs were for the community. And to find out, you know, what did they want for their, what kind of, what kind of goals did they have for their trail system? And so what came out of that was a couple of main things. And the community wanted some safe areas uh, for tourists to recreate that were very well managed and signed and possibly even signed in different languages. They needed a system for folks that were commuting because a lot of people are seasonal employees because they're working near the park and they don't have cars. So they're walking to and from their uh, community housing. And so to make a sustainable path for that, for those people to get to work safely, for example, the path they're using right now is kind of like, you know, gets muddy and it's not in the rights, you know, it's not necessarily maintained properly and things like that. And so to make a safe, sustainable way for these people. Cause this is also in an area up at 7,000 feet. So it snows and, you know, they have, they have quite a bit of weather up there. So to find out, you know, so those were the two main things is to, to give uh, visitors a safe place to give residents a safe way to get to and from work. And then also to have some recreational options that went through the forest. One of the things that I came up with on my own was the idea that you could make a really nice interpretive trail telling the, this was a really great opportunity to make an interpretive trail telling the history, the human history of Grand Canyon called the Grand Canyon History Trail. So this brings a lot, a couple of my different, you know, I was saying you never know where your, where your past experiences will come into help, but this melds my archeology span with my, love for telling the stories of Grand Canyon, of the people of Grand Canyon, of the indigenous people that have lived there for so many years. And then also the, to tell the history of tourism of Grand Canyon. And to do that on a scale that would be accessible to most people. So it's a 0.8 mile ADA accessible trip. So after we did that and we found out like where the, you know, I mentioned those control points, those places that are really interesting and pretty to go, um, that you want your trails to go by. Then um, I went out with uh, Mark Flint from Southwest Trail Solutions. Uh, we went out and laid out a new trail system. 
So it's about, um, there's two recreational loops that are uh, four miles and about seven miles each. And then um, a couple of commuter trails and then the Grand Canyon History Trail. So we went out and laid it out. And we do that by GPS and you're walking, you're walking the land, looking for those control points and also making sure you're paying attention to what kind of slope you're on so that the water will, the slope and the grade of the trail so that the water, like we mentioned, like I mentioned before, will um, shed off of it properly. I, I love this quote. If you build, if you, if you design a trail poorly, you're just willing a bunch of trail work onto future generations. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, um, so then uh, we came up with a plan. The plan was then put back to the community for, for public comment. And now uh, I'm in the process of the uh, national, it's the National Environmental Protections Act or the NEPA, which is all of the um, environmental studies. So archaeology and biology and wildlife and viewshed and um, those kinds of surveys will be done. We'll make sure that it's um, sustainable and it's not going through anywhere it shouldn't for any of those reasons. And then um, it'll then the actual building will occur. I'll probably be using a um, conservation corps to do the actual build of the trail. But right now we're in the NEPA process and that'll probably take the rest of the year. Okay. Yeah. That was going to be my other question is about timeline. When do you think potentially that the trails will be finished? We're hoping for two, uh, for 2020 that okay. the trails will be finished. And how exciting will that be for you to get to walk on these trails that you helped do from the beginning? Oh, it'll be so fun. I can't oh, wait. That's so exciting. And so you mentioned specifically the Grand Canyon History Trail and, you know, specifically talking about the indigenous people. One of the things I know that you've started doing whenever you post photos on social media or on your blog is making sure to acknowledge whose land those photos were taken on. Can you share about that? Sure. And I'd like to share that I'm uh, talking to you from Tucson, which is indigenous O'odham and Yaqui land. So it's something that I've learned uh, from other folks in the outdoor industry. And I think it's a really, it's an important practice to acknowledge the ancestral lands of, especially our recreation of all places, but I think especially our recreation, because I think there's this been this narrative, but, you know, these are public lands for everyone. And, you know, you never talk about where those lands came from. And as a Grand Canyon River guide, it was always my intention to bring awareness to that the fact that, you know, Grand Canyon is not Disneyland built for, built for you. You know, you, you are here because, you know, there's been stewards of the land since time began and that land was taken from them. And so, and just teaching people about not only, you know, and not just teaching people from an archeological perspective, from a, this is happening now, you know, there are tribes that live inside the Grand Canyon. There are tribes that, you know, this is where their stories are, you know, this is, it's very much an active thing. It is not something that's in the past. Yeah. That it's not just a history lesson. <laughs> right. Yeah. And, uh, I know, I think I saw you mention, um, a website that I've used as well, the nativeland.ca website, right? Yes. And I also try and do a little bit of my own research as well. And I think it's kind of interesting as well. You know, it's it's an interesting part of travel. I've had the opportunity to travel a couple places outside of Arizona and, you know, learning the new 
and different areas and uh, new and different indigenous people of those areas. And it just adds a different layer. I also, a thing I used to share a lot of times, and I think this speaks to leave no trace principles was, you know, to treat these places like they're your grandmother's house. And, you know, that, I think that brings in like the, just the reverence that we need to have for these places and the stewardship. Absolutely. So the way that we end these conversations is with a series of community questions. So the Patreon community, the folks who support the show, essentially pick some random rapid fiery questions that all eight guests of this season will be answering the same nine questions if you're down to answer nine random questions. Sounds good. What's something that you've gotten better at over the past year? Dance. I love that. What's one thing that you found challenging lately, something that you have been struggling with? Chronic pain. What's one thing that you love to splurge on when you can? Makeup. <laughs> Anything specific that you love? Anything specific makeup supplies? No. Glittery things. <laughs> I'm very into glittery, bright bright glittery splurge items. I love it. Uh, tell me about a time when you failed at something. It could be something big, small, but something that you failed at. Hmm. Let's see. That's a tough one. And if nothing comes to mind, that's okay too. Just I'm blanking. Yeah, that's okay. Maybe I can come up with something later. Yeah. Or we can skip it. Um, when you feel stuck, what's one thing that helps you to keep moving forward? To go move. Like physically move, you mean? Physically move and then come back to yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. What's one thing that feels really important to you right now? Maybe it's a goal or intention for the year or just something that you're consciously spending your time and energy on? Finishing my book on the best day hikes on the Arizona Trail. Yeah, and that's something that we didn't talk about a ton. Do you want to just kind of describe that project a little bit? Sure. So I'm in the process of writing the best day hikes on the Arizona National Scenic Trail for Wilderness Press. And I'm really excited about it because this is the culmination of basically all of my time on the trail and being able to share the 26 of my favorite pieces with readers. And I've had so much fun doing the research. I've had to rehike everything and rephotograph because I'm trying to use as many of my own photographs as possible. But it's been such a fun thing to do because I'm coming back and trying to teach people about the trail, but I'm also using that beginner's mind because I want this book to be something that anybody can pick up and use. I don't want this to be something that, you know, you have to be like a big hardcore hiker to use. There's hikes of all different lengths and even the longer hikes, a lot of times will have shorter options for them. And so I want to make the Arizona trail really accessible to people. I hear a lot of times, you know, oh, it's 800 miles. I could never do that. And then people kind of shut up. And what I want to do with this is give people the opportunity to see these gems of the trail without having to do the whole things. You know, it's very few people that have the time and energy or even the desire to do the entire thing. And so finding these pieces that are my favorites and then also with a lot of interpretive information. So if you walk past a ranch, what's the story of that ranch? If you're seeing mountains in the distance, what, what are those mountains? What are those weird plants all over the place? If you're you know, not from the desert, a lot of the plants are very unusual. And so it's just been really fun. Also, 
very stressful. I mean, it's one of those things where you're finally getting what you want, but it's just super stressful, but you have to be grateful anyway. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Cause I've dreamed of doing, I've dreamed of writing this book for ages. And so I, you know, my manuscript is due in November and the book will come out in spring 2020. And so I've got the rest of the year I've been writing and researching and it's been fun because I've been able to go to a lot of these places in different seasons than I've seen them before. And, um, you know, combining that with kind of a big road trip where I get to, you know, camp out in a lot of my favorite places. It's, it's been pretty amazing. Uh, yeah, that's super exciting. And also, again, selfishly, I will be very interested to buy this book as soon as it comes out because I there's so much. It's funny, like having done the whole 800 miles, like there's so much of it that sometimes like blurs together with a long hike that I would love to go back and do some, like you said, some of the like shorter things and learn more about those areas. Yeah, I'm really excited about it. So keeping on the subject of books, which two or three books, any type of book, any genre, would you say have either had the biggest impact on you personally or that you find yourself recommending or rereading most often? You know, it's kind of outdated, but Desert Solitaire really, you know, captured my imagination as far as the desert goes. And just because I'm a Grand Canyon fanatic, I reread Grand Obsession for the however many at time. Uh, It's the story of one of the people that have, has hiked the most in Grand Canyon, Dr. Harvey Butchart. And he, um, it's an interesting story, not only because of Grand Canyon, but also because of how his wife and the rest of his life had to kind of deal with this. It's called Grand Obsession. Yeah. Okay. Um, I've never read that. I will definitely check it out. The last question, if you could leave our community, the listeners, with one call to action, what would it be? Maybe a question to ask themselves or a small action to take? I'd ask yourself, what's your wildest dream and why aren't you doing it? Mm, That's such a good one. Um, What's the best place for people to find you and say hi online? Do you have a favorite way to connect with new folks? I like Instagram a lot. Uh, I really like the microblogging aspect of Instagram and the uh, interface. I also have a blog as well called Serena's Wanderings. But Instagram at, at, at Desert Serena or at Trails Inspire uh, works really well for if people want to reach out. Yeah, perfect. I will put links to all of that in the show notes. Serena, thank you so much. Thanks so much for having me on. And that's our show for today. Thanks so much for listening and for being part of the Real Talk Radio family. Speaking of the Real Talk Radio family, I want to give a huge shout out to Adam Day, my producer and sound engineer. Adam created the music for this show, and he makes everything work and flow and sound way better than I ever could on my own. You can find him and his music and his sound editing work at adamday.net. And as I said way back at the top of the episode, this is a 100% listener-supported show. The show is made possible by awesome people like Shannon. Hi, Shannon. Hi. So we're going to do a fun little round of rapid-fire questions if you're ready. I am ready. Tell me something you are totally obsessed with right now. See, I prepared for this question. (laughs) You're like, she's going to ask me this. Yes. Um, I've really been into cooking meals at home lately. I, you know, live alone. So it's very easy for me to just eat out frequently because why cook for yourself when other people will do that? Um, But no, I've been getting more into um, cooking a lot over the last few weeks. So it's been fun. Anything in particular that you're enjoying making? Um, my favorite recipe that I've tried so far this month is Chrissy Teigen's red 
chicken curry. So good. So just trying to experiment with just different profiles, flavor profiles. So. Nice. What's one thing that you have been awesome at lately? Go ahead and brag a little bit. Um, my job, actually, keeping things organized. I feel like I'm very, very good at managing the tiny details so that other people can do all the big picture stuff. That must be a good feeling. It is. Yeah. <laughs> What's your go-to song when you need a mood boost? Oh, this is embarrassing. Um, probably Get Low by the Yank Twins and Little John. <laughs> That's so. not embarrassing. That's an amazing answer. And when you said that, I was like, oh my God, college throwback. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's such a terrible song, but it's so much fun. And it just instantly parks me up. Yeah, yeah. Sometimes the terrible songs are like that, right? <laughs> What's one goal that you're working toward right now? Um, becoming more creative. I've... I don't know. I've just been thinking a lot about, you know, how to do things just for the sake of learning and beginning. And I just want to explore different creative things this year. Like I always tell myself I want to paint, but I don't want to be a beginner and sucking at it, but I'm trying to get over that and work towards just trying different things. That is super relatable. I think there's something really powerful about giving yourself permission to like, A, do something just for fun and B, like be a beginner and maybe be terrible at it. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Last question. What's one thing that you have recently been wishing that people were more open and honest about? (laughs) Always sex for sure. Um, Especially as a, you know, woman just I don't feel like we discuss our own things that bring us pleasure or, you know, we don't want to admit to our own fantasies or something. It still feels like a very male centric discussion, even when it is being had. So for sure that, and then also just like privilege and politics and economic disparity, how that all correlates so that maybe we could all listen to each other a little bit more instead of talking over one another. Yeah. Yes. (laughs) Sex and income inequality. Let's discuss. (laughs) I'm here for that. Exactly. Um, So you're a member of our Patreon support squad, which means that you're one of the people that listeners can thank for making this podcast possible since you make a powerful reoccurring pledge that helps to fund the costs of producing the show and paying the guests each season, for which I'm super grateful. And I'd love for you to share two things. First, why you decided to support the show and then um what you love most about either being in our community or if there's a particular bonus that you really like anything you want to share um i had decided to uh support as soon as you decided to go onto patreon i thought well that's great because one of my goals for that year back whenever you first started doing it was to actually support more women-owned businesses Hmm. And stuff. I wanted to, you know, kind of put my (laughs) money where I wanted to see it going. And so I was like, all right. Plus, I've been in your little corner of the internet for a very long time now. Forever, for literally forever. Yeah. (laughs) Exactly. So it's like, all right, you know, this is great. Someone that I appreciate and I appreciate her work. Let's do this. Um, As far as the community itself, always the Friday emails, of course. And, but I really love the monthly reflections with. Julia. That has been a popular answer this season from people. Um, and I'm not surprised. Julia is amazing. So I love hearing that you enjoy our conversations. It's so fun. Um, do you want to share where you live and maybe a social media link if people want to say hi? I live in Chicago, 
pretty close to Wrigley, so on the north side. And I can be found on Instagram and Twitter at Shannon W. C-H-A-N-N-Y-N-W. Perfect. And to everyone listening, if you love the podcast, if you want to help keep it going, if you want over 40 hours of bonus content, plus lots of other fun opportunities and extras, just go to patreon.com slash Nicole Antoinette to make your pledge of $8 or more for each eight episode season. I can't tell you how much that support means to me, and it'll be so much fun to get to know you better after you've joined our community. Maybe we can even record a future outro together like this one. So until next time, here's a big virtual hug and a reminder that we're all just doing the best we can, and no matter what, we're in this together. 